you know, you see or you hear how excited they are about other people's kids' successes. And when it's so focused in one field or two fields, like engineering or, or medicine, it kind of indirectly makes you feel like, oh, well, that's what they would want from you for them to be happy. And so even though my parents never expressly pushed me, you can't help but notice it. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Raj Kalra. Raj is a television executive with over 12 years of experience greenlighting new programs, negotiating production agreements, and launching cable networks. He's worked for companies like Disney and Marvel, as well as A&E Networks, Home Device Media, The History Network, and other well-known names. We chat about getting to LA to start working in the media industry, about being one of the only South Asian executives on the creative side of a media company, and his career tips. This is a former Marvel director, y'all, so listen up. Aside from his career, Raj has lots of other unique stories to share. For example, he's currently living in Korea. He told me why he moved there and compared that move to his parents coming to the US. He's in a same-sex interracial marriage. We talked about his father's unexpected reaction about whether he had the pressure to marry Indian when his sexuality was already outside of the norm within his community, and about his two adopted children. As a diaspora, we like to discuss, make memes about, and ponder the pressure that our parents put on us. It can be tough being the child of immigrants. No one can deny that. But an interesting theme in this conversation was the subconscious pressures that we put on ourselves. Listen for it. Okay, let's dive in. Raj Kalra, welcome to brown people we know. I'm a terrible insomniac, and I don't know if that was true for you, but I've heard that you had a pretty intense sleeping schedule when you were younger as well. Yeah, I don't know when it started, but I've always been pretty terrible at sleeping. And I can remember as early as high school, at least, you know, going to bed pretty late, 12, one o'clock, and then especially once I was in grad school and, and I started working, waking up around 4 or 4.30 to work out before work. And so it was like a solid four to five hours of sleep a night for years. And uh, yeah, that was rough. It was rough. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I watched, so stupid, but I saw, I used to watch Bill Maher and he had Ariana Huffington on once and she was talking about, her new what was new at the time her sleep study book and she was talking about how at some point her body just collapsed and gave in you know and I remember thinking I don't want that to happen to me and so I started reading I read her book just because that was the impetus for it all but then I read a bunch of other books about how how important sleep is and how destructive not sleeping is to your body and kind of scared me a little bit into making some big changes and I'm still not a great sleeper you know like if I don't follow my routine to get ready for bed I, I still will have this acute insomnia and I wake up through the night but I now shoot for seven to eight hours of sleep uninterrupted and uh, it's made a big difference so I encourage you to do that <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying I take melatonin before going to bed but Sometimes it doesn't kick in. And at least you were getting up to work out. I feel like when I stay up, it's just, it's nonsense. You know, like YouTube or scrolling Instagram or something. The biggest change I can recommend is I really put my phone, iPad, computer away a few hours before bed. And it makes a huge difference. Mm. Well, going off that topic, because sleep is very good for staying motivated and motivation is good for growing your career. I think we can start <laughs> on the topic of career. So like many immigrants and children of immigrants, you also seem to be pretty ambitious, but your ambition was directed in somewhat of an unusual direction. You went towards the media industry. So can you tell me about your early days in the media industry? Like you said, it was, um, I guess, an unusual choice. But, you know, for me, it was the only industry I've ever wanted to work in. 
it's still the only industry I, I want to work in. Um, I grew up right outside Philadelphia and wanted to move to LA pretty much at the same time I knew that I wanted to work in media. So as a kid and uh, my parents were always so like dismissive of that <laughs> because they have friends and a community in their jobs. And, you know, the idea of moving your family for one kid is ludicrous. Anyway, so I, uh, as soon as I could go to grad school in LA, I did. And, you know, I wanted to work at Disney and that was my first real job out of school. And, you know, I worked there for about four years within like Walt Disney Studios before transferring to another part of the company. And honestly, it was the best experience because I got my MBA. I know you are wrapping that up as well. And, you know, I went to undergrad and then I rolled into my MBA and I realized I never really learned how to be a professional or like to be a human in the world. And so I left uh, my MBA feeling like really smart, <laughs> like I knew my shit. And uh, Disney was so great at just making me realize I didn't know anything, but giving me such a great place to learn and to grow and, and to not just be like, man, this kid is cocky and we're going to cut him down and then cut him loose. It was more like we're going to break him in and then see if he can run. And yeah, I really, I really um, came to appreciate that. And I don't think it was until I worked at Disney that my parents, uh, my dad especially, kind of understood what I had been clamoring on about. Because, you know, when you tell your parents, and maybe this is true for non-South Asian parents as well, but when you, you know, when I'm going on about wanting to work in TV, it can feel really like, what is he talking about? And what does that mean? And that's not a career and that's not a, a valid life choice. And then, you know, you go to work at a place like Disney and that company means something and people know that brand all around the world. I don't even know if my, my parents have ever understood what I actually do, but they know the, the companies that I've worked for. And so, you know, I think the first time I heard my dad say he was proud of me is when I told him I got the job at Disney, which... You know, I waited a long time for it, but it was really, it was really worth it. <laughs> so you said that you'd always wanted to work in media. Do you know where that spark came from? Was there like a specific reason or a moment that that had kind of started? You know, I think growing up where I did in a predominantly white area, being the oldest Indian kid in my parents' social group, I never had people like me. So the only place I, f I kind of had refuge was in media, primarily music at the beginning, you know, later TV, never quite movies, but that was, it was my escape. I could go into these worlds where I saw characters that I related to because I didn't relate to anyone in my real life. And I don't know, as I grew older, I really wanted to work in a business that could give that to somebody else because media has given me so much. And I saw a lot of value in it being a vehicle for me to do the same. So you had mentioned to me that the Desi community that you came from was mostly people going into medicine, people going into finance. When you said, I wanted to work in TV, I'm guessing that they were probably picturing an actor, right? Because they weren't really thinking about the behind the scenes type stuff. So can you talk to me about that? I feel really lucky that my parents never kind of overtly pushed me to go into uh, any kind of field. To be honest, they never overtly pushed me in any way towards religion, towards culture. You know, they were pretty hands-off and wanted to see me do whatever would make me happy, or at least that was kind of the what they put out there. And I think that's really different than a lot of the Indian kids I grew up with. However, there's a lot of indirect pressure because Indian people and I should just blanket state this is only from my experience and not representative of all Indian people, but, you know, I find that Indian people are just so competitive in an unhealthy way. So they can't help but talk about other families and other, other families' kids. So it comes up in little ways that they talk even when you're in the backseat of a car and they're in the front seat about so-and-so's kid is going to X school or they're graduating from this program or they're going to work at this hospital and 
you know, you see or you hear how excited they are about other people's kids' successes. And you can't help but realize that maybe they would want that for you. And when it's so focused in one field or two fields like engineering or, or medicine, it kind of indirectly makes you feel like, oh, well, that's what they would want from you for them to be happy. And so even though my parents never expressly pushed me, you can't help but notice it. I don't know if they are always aware of the pressure they're putting on not just their own kids, but the kids in the community. But, you know, I think that happens. Did that ever make you consider other things or how were you able to kind of stick to your guns in terms of pursuing entertainment despite that? Of course, I mean, I had doubts and I, I had flirtations with other things. You know, I spent a summer interning for a real estate company. I worked as an intern for the summer at State Farm where my dad was working um, in the marketing department. And, you know, I found that I have a certain level of competence and the ability to succeed in anything that I've done. But man, if I'm not interested in it, is it the worst experience? You know, I talk about how I left law school after my first year, not because my grades weren't good, but the amount of work I had to put in for something that I had zero interest in was just not worth it for me. And anytime my eye has gone elsewhere, because I wanted to be paid more, because I wanted more clout. It just has never worked. I just find that I have self-sabotaged myself too. The worst interviews I've given have always been at non-media companies because I think people can tell that I am not doing it for the right reasons. So yeah, everything has always led me back to media. That is super relatable for me because I graduated with a biochem major and I did it in three years and I was gunning and taking the, the path that that those aunties would talk about <laughs> at that party. But <laughs> man, it was really, really a terrible time. Like I, you know, I got A's in most of my biochem classes, but I basically lived in the libraries. And the, the thing that resonates most with me that you said was like the fact that it never felt like science came to me naturally versus now when I'm doing things that I want to, it's A, like if I look at business stuff, the concepts come easier. But then B, if I'm looking at even something like podcasting, not only am I up sometimes at 3am working on this because I'm an insomniac, but I'm enjoying that time, you know, versus biochem, so much of that was driven just by almost the gamification around the exams. And so once you come out of that environment, it's just you lose even that enjoyment, right? So that whole thing is super relatable. But clearly, you've built a really great career. As you said, you started at Disney. Since then, you've worked at Marvel. You worked at A&E Networks, which is home to Vice and the History Channel. You're currently with Particle 6, which is a London-based media company. So I kind of want to just pause there and ask if you've had any favorite moments or projects, like if they had you try on the Iron Man suit at Marvel or anything like that. <laughs> well, I, I believe that Robert Downey Jr. is quite short, so I don't know if that costume would have fit me. <laughs> but, you know, I've had a lot of moments that I'm really proud of. I've had projects at Disney that went on to win awards, key art awards for The Hollywood Reporter that I'm really proud of. I've had shows at Marvel that got greenlit and went on to air for upwards of seven seasons, five seasons. So those are really exciting. But I always think that for me, because I didn't have role models growing up, the coolest moments for me in my career have been opportunities I've been able to give to other people, been able to hire interns and coordinators and folks that have gone on to do really cool things and in so many ways either surpassed me or you know are just living their best life. And so when I look back on my career, whenever that will be, I hope that those are the moments that I look back on most fondly. It's, uh, it's not like the cool, sexy thing to be like, yeah, I mentored someone and that was my favorite <laughs> part of my career. But honestly, it has been. And um, I also hope that the visibility that working in media has been for my community back home, not just the South Asian community, but just kind of the suburban Philadelphia folks. Hopefully more people see this as a career option and 
decide to pursue it. Along the lines of, of mentoring, you went from manager to director in just four years at Marvel, and you've continued to build this career. So for someone that's looking to enter media in the media industry or just in general, I'm curious what your career tips would be. Slight correction. Um, two years. Even faster. <laughs> I went from manager in 2012 to director in 2014. Tips. You know, I, I don't know if there's something that kind of I would advise across the board. For myself, I've just tried to always be as transparent as possible. You know, like I'm not really good at gamesmanship or kind of playing politics. So I just had to work hard. And, and at some point in every job, I've realized, wow, I'm working harder than or producing better than my title would suggest. And at that point, there's a conversation that I've always had with who I work for to just say like, this isn't right, you know, and, and it's been really respectful. And but I, I don't go in on day one thinking I'm going to be promoted at this time or I'm going to ask for a raise at this time. And I think that's benefited me. I've like I've had a, a desire to just work hard right out of the gate to learn about the business that I'm in at the moment. And I have a want to do well, maybe because I didn't hear my parents tell me they were proud of me explicitly. I get like such pleasure out of getting positive feedback from the people that I work with, whether it's small or big. So I'm always in pursuit of that. I don't think that that comes as easy when your, your eye is on the next job. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is, and I do, I do think this would be applicable to everybody, but I tell people to just find people that will be champions for them and be champions for other people. So I've been really lucky that every boss that I've had has really been willing to recommend me for the job I had after. And sometimes that was within the same company I was at. And sometimes that was being willing to recommend me outside the company because they knew the opportunity was so great for me. And it shouldn't be about just finding the most senior level executive to write a perfunctory recommendation for you. Have someone that really believes in you, because I think it comes across when they speak about you to other people in the industry that you're in. And just have, I mean, have fun. After you left Marvel, you went to work in A&E. Uh, so you moved from California, which I believe you've referred to as your forever home, <laughs> over to New York. And to me, that's like a pretty big move because when I think of California, I'm thinking Hollywood. When I'm thinking New York, I'm thinking almost more towards news. Uh, I think like the Fox station is there. Good Morning America shot there. I think even Patriot Act, which you could call news in a way, was shot there. I'm curious how the media industry is different between those two cities. Do you see a big difference or did it feel pretty similar? I mean, New York is a lot, to me, it feels a lot smaller in terms of the media industry. I mean, LA is spread out. There are more media companies. I, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it feels like there are more media companies. And I mean, I can't say enough good things about, about LA. Uh, you know, we moved to New York 100% to be closer to my family as we were building our family. If not for that, we would never have left. <laughs> we never wanted to live in New York. It was, we want to be close to family. I work in media. Ergo, the only place that we can live that's close but allows me to keep working is New York. Mm. That really was the calculation. I'm really lucky that I found a job in New York that had it been in LA, I would have wanted to pursue it. You know, I didn't have to sacrifice in my career to make that change. You know, I don't know if a lot of people are able to do that. So um, I'm really grateful that I was able to find that opportunity. But talk about night and day. And LA and you're right, it is uh, my forever home. And it's really the only place I've ever considered home. And leaving there, um, I have equated to breaking up with someone that you didn't want to break up with, but you thought you had to because of pressure from external forces and that you still think about every day. And even like in your new relationship, you're still thinking about that person <laughs> every day. That's what it was like. It was like the most unhealthy situation. Scrolling their Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. 
especially because you're now not even in New York, you're now in Korea. And I'm still thinking about it every day. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one last question or topic before we shift to the topic of Korea. There's a push for South Asians to be kind of on screen in media right now. And when I spoke to Kunal about this on episode 16, we, we started speaking about South Asians behind the scenes, whether that's like more directors as opposed to actors, but also the people in the business end. He's more focused on the media side and or sorry, on the music side and the legal side. But I'm curious from your perspective in the film and television area, have you seen a lot of South Asians there? I'm seeing more and more now. You know, there have been some key promotions over at Disney Fox, senior... South Asian executives announced. And so that's really exciting and it's great in 2021. You know, I wish in 2008 that that had been the case. I can't think of a single South Asian in a creative area that was senior to me when I was starting. That's not to say that there weren't at other companies. You know, even kind of more in my entry level mid manager world, I can really only think of one. And she is still one of my very close friends. But the Indian people, the South Asian people that I knew were in IT, some in finance. And that hasn't been great for the stereotype or, or breaking down that stereotype. But I'm encouraged to see what has been in the news recently. And I, I hope that will only continue. Do you think that getting more South Asians behind the scenes in the business and do you think that would lead to more South Asians on screen or do you think those two things aren't really linked? No, I mean, I think they're absolutely linked. I think people have empathy and people have interest in stories they can relate to. And so when I think about growing up and watching media that was made for white people, primarily white men, and then realizing that all the executives at the time were white men, I'm not surprised. And the U.S. was created in the image of a specific demographic, even though the people building the country were not that demographic. And so I think dismantling that can only start by putting different voices and different experiences in at the root, because honestly, just having people on screen isn't enough. So, Raj, I want to come back to what we were chatting about briefly before, which is the fact that you're now in Korea. Why did you choose to pick up in the middle of a global pandemic and move not to another city, but over to another country? I mean, we lived in New York, so pretty much anywhere would have felt better. Uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, uh, my husband had a really great career opportunity. And, you know, when we got married, I acknowledge all the sacrifices he had made for me, which he continued to do when we moved to New York, which I can talk about my disdain for New York, but he can really, really sell you on it because he <laughs> really didn't like it. And when this opportunity came up, he is a senior administrator at uh, one of the top international schools here. And so, you know, when I think of him pursuing his dreams and his ambitions, but then also giving our kids a world-class education for a fraction of what it would cost to do so in the States, it never occurred to me to not support this move. My parents moved from India the year before I was born to pursue a better life for their family. It wasn't a, we're going to go and just live it up in America, not have kids. And, you know, it was really a family decision. And so I also looked at it as, something coming full circle. Like I'm able to be in the same position to say a better life for my family is here. And, you know, we've been here now nine months, about nine months. And so far that's absolutely paid out to what we thought would happen. And that's not to say that there weren't great opportunities there. And, you know, our family and friends aren't there, which they are. But when I think about education, when I think about me personally feeling anxiety about sending my kids to school there in a world where kids are getting shot up in schools, 
it's been really relieving to have so much negative baggage that I didn't even know I was carrying when I lived there gone. You know, I don't worry about so much of the stuff that apparently I was worried about <laughs> when I was there. I encourage everyone, if they have the opportunity to live abroad, even for a little bit, to do so. Your father has kind of an interesting background. He was a refugee for a period of time in India and then migrated over to the U.S. And this analogy that you just kind of painted of your parents moving to the U.S. for a better life and then you moving to Korea for a better life, I think is like super interesting. So I'm curious if you feel like the way that your parents defined a better life is similar to how you and Brad define a better life. Yeah, I um, I don't want to be annoying and, and be uh, super corrective, but just to be clear for my my dad's family, should they listen to this, he himself was not a refugee. He was the first kid born after they had resettled in India. His older sisters and his parents were, were the refugees, but... No, I think they, I think we would define it sim similarly in terms of pursuing a better life. I think the only thing that might be different is that when they moved to the U.S., where my dad came first, he had family here. He knew people from India that had come here, right? So there was a little bit of like a community migration that was happening. And that's not the case here. Like, I don't expect other people to follow us here. <laughs> and um, by the way, I would highly encourage everyone that I love to follow us here because that would be great, but I don't really expect it to happen. But that's really the only thing. You know, I don't remember my parents ever talking about specific parts of American culture being what drove them there. It was really more about career opportunities and educational opportunities for the kids that they were going to have. And so... I don't really know how that's different. Hmm. Well, with the rise of K-pop and K-dramas, like, I feel like Korea is coming more and more into the mainstream. Obviously, a lot of that has been modified for the Western audience, what we're seeing in the U.S., but people might just end up following you over <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, so I have two, kind of, two questions going off that. And the first one kind of has to do with how you're perceiving the things around you. And the context that I kind of want to put for this question is, if I were to go to India and not realize, for example, that Hinduism is the majority of religion and Hindus see cows as sacred, I would be bewildered by the fact that I couldn't find a burger anywhere, right? And so I think any place you go, there's certain cultural subtext, certain cultural norms that you need to kind of pick up. I'm curious how you pick those things up, if that was something you were able to start doing before you moved to Korea, if that's something that you've been doing after you've moved there, and that what that process was like. We read a bunch before we moved here about the history, about the culture. We started learning the language a few months out before we moved, but that was really it. In terms of acquiescing to the culture here, I don't know how much we've done, how much I've done. That is very different than what we were doing in the States. I take off my shoes more when I enter my home. <laughs> and obviously I do that at other people's houses because that's what the expectation is. People are always surprised to find out that we're vegetarian because that's really not a thing here. And so we've adjusted to going out to eat because we don't do that as much because there aren't as many options for us here to do that, which probably from a budget standpoint is better. For us to eat at home more and there, there are different things that we pay attention to that we didn't before you know air quality um, I have an app on my phone to tell me what the air quality is because on any given day it can be great or it can be terrible and people talk about that and that's a, a reason kids stay inside and, or, or don't stay inside and you know I think the conversation the topics of conversation are different here too with my Korean friends and maybe, maybe this is the case because I'm a foreigner. Maybe if they were with their Korean, like it was Korean to Korean interaction, the conversation might be different. But I find that people don't talk about politics. People talk a lot about family. I haven't had the experience where people talk about work a lot. And that wasn't my experience for the last, for the four years before we moved here. And 
honestly, part of that was New York because I found that people talked about jobs more there. And the four years that we spent in New York almost entirely overlapped with the U.S. president that was in office before Biden. And I don't know if, you know, 2016 had been different, if the conversation topics would have been, you know, I don't, I don't know how much of what was driving the culture in New York was that. Mm. But here, I find things here super funny because there are laws and, and people are much more reluctant to criticize things here versus the U.S. Everyone has an opinion and everyone is shouting, myself included at times, about what's not working and what's broken. And here, people don't really do that. But then you listen to the news and there's like so much corruption rampant and... and um, people glorify suicide and, and there's so much like a high suicide rate here. And it's like, I don't know. I feel like if that was in the U S people would be talking about it. And I don't know. I find, <laughs> I find it to be really, um, interesting. So the second part of that question of how you're perceiving the things around you is like how you're being perceived. It's funny that you mentioned air quality because that wasn't something that I had ever thought about until I visited Beijing. And then I had to do the same thing where I was checking air quality as I was going out. I'm wearing a mask. This was like way pre-COVID. Another thing that was kind of odd was that people would come up to me and they'd want to take pictures because I had brown skin. And like the general perception was, until people maybe heard me speaking in English, was that I was from India. So I'm curious if the Korean people, as you go out, if they perceive you as Indian or if they see you as American right away. I, I'm not sure is the answer. I mean, obviously, once I start talking, it's pretty clear. I find that I don't really notice people noticing me when I'm by myself or actually with when I'm with Leo, who's our older son, because he has dark hair and dark features. But when I'm out with Wesley, who's our younger son, who is blonde hair and blue eyed, that's when I get, I get tons of looks. I get tons of, you know, old Korean women coming up to us. I get people asking me, like, is this your son? Just out of the blue. And then, like, walking away from me when they hear yes. Not, not in disgust, but more like, okay, he answered our question. And that's all that we were interested in. That's when I feel the most other is when I'm with him. But I also, I don't know that that would have been so materially different in the U.S. To have someone with my skin tone carrying around a kid that is clearly not my biological child so you know it it is what it is people may have deduced from the name that brad is american <laughs> do you find that people perceive him or react to him differently in korea yeah i mean he is beige and blue-eyed and this goes back to what we talked about in terms of the impact of having different voices kind of behind the scenes in media but Brad is who this world was in many ways created to cater to. And so he's a standard of beauty that people here especially are very respectful to. They made skin bleaching cream to look like people like him. And that is a thing here, as it is in India and, and other parts of the world. And so, yeah, people perceive him differently. And, and you know, he's also... The reason we moved here. So he's in the um, a profession and an industry that are very valued in Korea, right? Education. So in my opinion, in my humble opinion, he has joined the A-list here. So that's great. <laughs> so speaking of Brad, I also kind of want to transition and talk a little bit more about family. Can you kick us off by telling us why American Idol is a special show for you? <laughs> It is a special show for a number of reasons. The first being up until this season, this current season, when we were in Korea, I watched every single episode. I voted for Kelly Clarkson. I feel very like there's some skin in the game there. You know, but for us personally, you know, we met auditioning for the show season, I don't know, whatever season that lead to wise one. Which, by the way, total forgettable winner. So it makes sense that it's a total forgettable season number for me. And we had our first 
dinner together after that, and it's been really special to us. We sing together. Music is a big part of our household. It's the first thing that Leo glommed onto when he started to speak. And so American Idol is special. Music in general is special. We got to see it in its final, what I'll consider its final season when it was on Fox. We went to see it live, and uh, it was the first time either of us had seen the show live. And so that also was a nice kind of cap to the American Idol story. So when you came out to your parents, I heard that you had your bags packed. At that time, you were living in California. I think they were supporting you financially with your place. And so you were concerned that they were going to kick you out when you kind of told them that you were gay. But then it didn't go exactly how you expected. So can you talk about that moment? Yeah, I, literal bag packed. I should have known better in hindsight, but I was 26. I don't know. I was in my mid-20s and had had a number of years to kind of let this fester and, and grow in my head about what that reaction would be. And so, yeah, I had a bag packed and I sent a, like a physical letter. I don't know if uh, listeners of this pod would know what that is, but I sent a <laughs> physical letter um, as a geriatric millennial to arrive on my dad's 60th birthday because I love drama. And um, I called him on his 60th birthday to confirm receipt. And, you know, I asked him, did you receive this letter? And he said, yes. And I said, what did you think? You know, what do you think? His reaction was he teared up and he took accountability, which I wasn't asking him to do or expecting him to do. And he said, you know, I'm really sad that I wasn't able to create the kind of environment at home where you would feel comfortable figuring this out and coming out sooner. And then I started crying and then was annoyed that he made me cry, cry because I was expecting to like, you know, have my... Your shouting match. Like, yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was so ready for it. And, um, and then I, I was just like super upset about it. Like I said, I should have expected something better because, you know, my history of my parents is always expecting the worst and then exceeding my expectations. And I don't, I honestly don't know where that comes from because they, um, were always so great to me growing up and kind and, and encouraging. And so I don't know where that defensiveness is, is built from, but yeah, they were so incredibly receptive and I brought Brad back to meet them a few months later and they welcomed him. They welcomed him into their home from day one. I can't speak for what they were feeling or what he was feeling in his heart leading up to that. I don't know what anxiety he might have had, if any, but the the face that he put on from the very beginning was nothing more like other than completely accepting. And yeah, I it is kind of if I look back on all of the memories I have with him, it is by far the most enduring and kind of seared in my, in my heart. Like when I think of him, that's what I think of. That's amazing. You mentioned this question that he brought up about how he could have made things more comfortable at home or, or how he could have built an environment where you would have felt more comfortable figuring this out, coming out sooner. What do you think he could have done? to have built that environment? I don't think there's anything he could have done that would have been organic to who they are. Like I said, the, the home that I grew up in was really welcoming. And he and my mom had friends of all different kinds. I think that I didn't have a lot of visibility to other gay South Asian people, and that's not their, that's not their responsibility to go out and, and seek that. But that just was kind of the time period I grew up in. I would hope that people now, kids now, are having more visibility to that. My mom probably always knew. My dad was a smart man. He should have probably known because 
because they didn't push me to do anything, I was running around the house singing The Little Mermaid or, you know, like I sang on my own from Les Mis around my house for years and all the signs, all the signs were there, even if I didn't know at the time. And I don't remember them ever once being like, you shouldn't do this, or this isn't something that a boy does. You know, like they, that wasn't part of me growing up. So when, I, when I'm asked what they could have done, I, I really don't think there's anything they could have done. I think it was just a process of me coming to this on my own. What you had just mentioned about, like, you didn't see any gay South Asian men in media, in the community. And so where, like, you may have had questions. I wonder if they had a similar experience where they didn't see any gay South Asian men either, right? And so maybe it had just never crossed their mind. Yeah, but I also know that they got questions from their gossipy community about it. And so even if they weren't thinking it or he wasn't thinking it, I definitely know that they were hearing it externally. But, you know, like I said, they they never pushed me to get married. Like there was never like this, let's trick him into telling us, which I can't say for other people in my South Asian community, but I, I will always appreciate and love the space they gave me to figure this out, even if I was probably a terror through the whole process. <laughs> Can you elaborate on why it would have been helpful to see like a gay South Asian male as opposed to just seeing a gay male in that process? Or it, was there a specific reason that you used gay South Asian male as opposed to just saying like a gay male? I think you want to see people that are like you. You know, if you're only seeing gay people on screen, and by the way, there weren't that many gay people of any color when I was a kid on screen, but if they are 100% white, then you think it's a white people thing. Like I knew I was different at a very young age, but I didn't know that I could be gay. I, like, I, don't, I don't know what I thought back when I was really little. Had there been people that look like me, I think it would have helped me kind of come to terms with, this is an outcome that is possible. And so, you know, to have other kids labeling me as this or that was always really hard, especially when I was really young. I couldn't understand why folks were labeling me because I didn't see other people that would have fit that label. Labeling you as in calling you gay or something like that. Or a slur variation of that. Yeah. 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 I, but I could never really wrap my head around it because to me it was always like, you're saying that I'm this but I'm not seeing any other people like this. So are you telling me that I'm like the only one? Like that, that's, <laughs> that's weird. Yeah. I interviewed Vikasa Rune a couple of episodes ago and he's also a gay South Asian male. And he said almost the exact same thing. He said, being a South Asian, but not seeing any gay South Asian men, he didn't feel that being gay was something that could quote unquote happen to an Indian man. It's, interesting to hear the same story from two different people and i think it also speaks volumes about the need for representation and I'm, I'm curious if this has this part of your identity has fueled your journey into media because we talked about how you saw characters that you could connect with in media do you feel like bringing representation in this way is a part of your mission there or not really it's something that i would love to see but it's not really not my reason for being here. And I hope that other people that this is their mission for them, I encourage that and I support that. But me, I really wanted to bring entertainment home for kids and be more general to, a, I guess, a younger audience. But yeah, I mean, I think the other part where that's important is, and I mentioned this with Brad when you, went, you asked about how he's perceived here. You know, it took me a long time, not until I was in my 30s already, to really realize that brown people, brown guys in particular, could be attractive. I never saw myself that way. It's still a battle that I fight every day. But I have been programmed in the way a lot of people have to view one type of male as attractive. And then over the years, that's kind of been a dismantling or deprogramming of myself. So that's been hard. 
to kind of be like, I wish there were more people like me, but then at the same time also be like, well, I don't find them attractive because my brain is wired in a certain way now. And so I said on a podcast a while back that brown bodies are beautiful. If you had asked me that five years ago, I would not have said that. <laughs> and, and, and so part of representation is also giving people space to realize that everyone is beautiful, right? Or everyone, everyone's body has value. And when our bodies are always covered up or always the comedic sidekick in a show and not the romantic lead, you know, you start to think that that's the role that you're supposed to play. You know, I didn't think that there were gay South Asian people, but I also, I drifted towards comedy. Like I always wanted to make people laugh because the Indian people I did see, that's what they were doing. That's, that is the core function that they provided in a show, right? Like they were either the butt of the jokes in a convenience store on The Simpsons, or they were Tom Haverford on Parks and Rec or Mindy Kaling. Like it, it was always funny. And there was no, not until Mindy's show did I feel like there was an effort to dimensionalize brown people. I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing now. It's interesting because you're not only in a same-sex marriage, but an interracial same-sex marriage. I'm curious if you've ever felt more conscious about that especially when it comes to your South Asian community, because I know like even I've had pressure from my parents. My parents have made it kind of clear intentionally or unintentionally that they want me to marry an Indian woman, basically. Now I see you kind of having to deal with coming out, but then also potentially worrying about marrying outside of the Indian community. I'm, I'm curious if that was ever a thing that crossed your mind or if you were like, you know what, I'm already so far from traditional norms <laughs> that, that what's done is done. I think if there had been this deep pool of gay Indian men, maybe that would have been different. Maybe they would have, there would have been that kind of either direct or indirect pressure, but there just wasn't. And I was the first one in my South Asian community to come out. And so, you know, my parents are, fa are family oriented and I think they were just happy that I wanted to have a family. And it was more important to do that, be that, to get married, to have kids, because they knew that was important. And the fact that it was interracial was less important because, like, what was the alternative um, to achieving that goal? I certainly felt pressure that was completely self-directed because, you know, an Indian wedding is about families coming together. And there's a commonality in a lot of ways to two families that have a shared journey or shared trauma or, or whatever. And for a long time, I was disappointed with myself that I was not able to provide that for them, that they weren't able to have kind of counterparts. You know, there couldn't be this big coming together that they were used to. And I was used to from having attended a number of weddings. But that wasn't from them. That was never from them. And so I don't know if I had pressure. How did you reconcile that desire to give your family those counterparts? Because I think those are the types of things, again, when we, when our parents tell us like we shouldn't marry interracially and then they bring up like a racist reason or something that we don't agree with, it's easy to kind of get into the shouting match and then forget about it. But those subconscious things, I think, are the harder ones to kind of get over, the ones that we kind of put on ourselves. So I'm curious if, if you had a process of reconciliation for that or it was just like, you know what, uh, this isn't what's important in the end. I, I think I just had to get over it. Carrying it around with me was hard and it was taking up so much emotional baggage to have everything else going on. And then on top of that, carrying on this disappointment that my parents weren't reflecting on me. It was me projecting for them. It was, it was stupid. And I wanted to be a better kid to them. And, and I knew that they loved Brad and Brad loves them, loved them. And so I decided that that was enough. So today I know like in America, there's still stigma against same-sex marriage, but obviously over the last few years, it's, it's really progressed in a better direction. 
I'm curious if you feel like you've seen similar trends in the South Asian community and if you feel just as comfortable expressing your sexuality or, you know, introducing people to Brad in a South Asian environment, for example, at a function as you would in an American environment. I'll say that I am very privileged to have grown up in a South Asian community that was more progressive than not. Part of that might be education driven, part of that might be economic, but I never felt uncomfortable bringing him around or introducing him. Like I never once was like, this is my awkward pause partner or, or whatever, like roommate. I don't know. I never felt that. And so I never did. Um, I think part of it was also because I was the different one in our community growing up. I was used to being different. Who cares? I don't know if that's true, broadly speaking. I don't know if it's gotten better, broadly speaking. You know, I was just reading about how in India, like same-sex partners still can't give like medical direction for their loved ones that are in the hospital. And during a pandemic, I just think of that as completely horrific. And so at least legally, I, I don't know how much progress has been made, if any, there. And I can say for my cousins that live in India, have only lived in India, I've never felt like shame or a need to kind of defend my life to them. I have just a couple more questions before we wrap up. But the first is, I think kind of going back to that topic of interracial marriage, one of the concerns that is generally expressed is that parents are concerned that in an interracial marriage, there's going to be a loss of South Asian culture, like you're going to kind of lose your roots. So my first question is just generally, how do you retain South Asian culture in your life? Like, what does that mean to you? And then second, I guess your 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 children are still pretty young, but do you feel some of those challenges or are you concerned about some of those challenges in terms of passing on the culture? I'll answer your second question first and say, no, I'm not concerned really. For me, culture is a weird word, like uh, something that I don't think about quite a bit because the older that I've gotten and the more that I've read, the more disenchanted I've become with just culture in general, right? Like I am American by nationality, I'm Indian by ethnicity, and to me, neither one of those is shit. For me, culture is just the values that we have decided are important to us as a family, and that's the culture that's important. So I don't really consider myself either American or Indian. I think of myself as brown, which is a composite color and is made up of all of these values and traits that I carry with myself. You know, things that are specifically South Asian that are important to me or that I enjoy are, everyone says this to you, is the food. Clearly it's the food. <laughs> Clearly it's the food. Even more so when we decide to be vegetarian because... Indians have been doing that a long time. <laughs> so a lot of great vegetarian options there. Um, and, you know, I got lucky that I have a husband that, or a spouse, because I, I think anyone would be lucky regardless of the gender of their spouse. But, he, you know, he loves Indian food and he loves cooking and he has taken a very great interest in learning to cook Indian food and has gotten quite good at it. And I don't say that as his spouse because I have been very open with um, how off the mark some of those early dishes were. <laughs> so uh, to see the growth there has been really great. You know, we have kids that are not South Asian and he's not. And I, other than my skin color, I don't really relate to South Asian culture. If you dropped me in India, I would be a fish out of water there. So I take that um, the food is kind of the primary thing. And our kids are great eaters, and, and they've been eating Indian food since they were allowed to eat. And so that I'm not worried that that will not continue. And other things that are important culturally, I guess, to use that word, are just kind of being more family, like generationally focused, is something that I find different than some of my... Um, white counterparts, right? Like the idea that you would take care of your parents and, and there's this kind of cycle of 
care, which is, I think, true broadly across Asia, broadly across lots of parts of the world that are not in America. I think that's important to me. Not that I'm like looking for a handout from my kids when I'm old to take care of me, but I just, I want them to want that. This immigrant story of my parents of wanting to, to do what's best for their family that we're kind of in the process of doing, which is not South Asian, but more immigrant generally, I would love for them to have that as something that's important to them. Um, that's that's pretty much it. That last point about family and looking across generations brings up a pretty interesting point for me because I've asked several guests on the show about parenting and how they look at their own parents and how they now want to parent their children. But the last thing I'll ask you is I'd love your perspective on what you see as your role or your duty to your own parents and how that's changed now that you've become a parent. Because I think in South Asian culture, we see a lot more emphasis on, or at least when I speak to my South Asian friends versus when I speak to my American friends, we tend to see more of an emphasis on like the relationship upward, so to speak. And this might seem all hypocritical coming from someone who just left their mom to move to Korea. So who knows? But, you know, I feel a, a duty to not just move forward with my life and not look back. I 100% believe that if I didn't have a brother that lived close to where my mom lives now, I don't think this move would have happened. I don't think I would have been comfortable enough to just completely leave her solo. I used to talk to my mom more often than I think my friends do, my American friends, but not like every day. I talk to my dad every day, <laughs> but, um, but since I've been here in Korea, I talk to her a whole lot. I probably talk to her more than I talk to anybody else. And so I, I just, I feel like, you know, she's my parent that I have left. And, you know, I know that even just through COVID of me, my brother and her, I was definitely the most on her ass about like being safe and not going out and we'll go to the store so you don't have to go to the store, you know? And that completely came from a place of wanting to protect and look after her and, you know, like wanting her to live with us someday. And for a long time, I wanted both of my parents, but now especially her, to live with us because my grandma lived with me when I was a kid and wanting her to be there for our kids. But then it's different, right? Because my grandmother didn't have the same community in America and didn't have like all of these friends to stay with in her community. So I've kind of stopped wanting that because the more that I've read about aging and mental health and dementia, it's like, selfishly, would it be great to have my mom live with us? Sure. But do I want to accelerate like a decline of mental health because I'm pulling her away from the things that stimulate her brain? No, I'm not really willing to do that. Yeah, it's a hard trade-off. I'll just end by asking where people can find you and follow your work online. Pretty much any social media that's appropriate for someone my age. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I think that's it. You won't find me on TikTok because I don't understand that. My Instagram is like a great view into how I see the world and what I try to do. And I um, am very open about politics and parenting and my own failings as a person and, and trying to make good choices and also just being messy because in hindsight, that's probably what I wished for the most for like um, what I had seen as a kid. Cause I didn't see like regular Indian people. Like everyone was so gassed up on this model minority myth that it was like, no, nothing's wrong. People can't have issues with their mental health. People don't get divorced. Everyone's a doctor and everyone makes only good choices. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I want people to see me fall down sometimes and, and know that that's okay. But it is the Rajan Kalram because I'm the only one. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your story and thanks for chatting, Raj. You're welcome.
Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.